Welcome to the Church 214 podcast. We're glad that you've joined us today. We hope that you enjoy today's message. And if you'd like to find out more about our church, please visit our website at church214.org. Well, welcome to Church 214. For those of you that don't know me, my name is Isaac. Uh, I have the pleasure of serving. I don't know who said, oh, Halo, what's up? I have the pleasure of serving in, in multiple different areas uh, around the church. Happy Super Bowl Sunday. Yep. Uh, no, you can leave. No. Just kidding, just kidding. Uh, actually, what I really want to say, though, is welcome to the real Super Bowl. I don't want to throw shade on the NFL. I don't want to throw shade on football. I, I, I played football. It's a great sport. I love it. Um, but, like, when you have the chance to gather in the midst of other believers, in the midst of God's family, and be equipped and encouraged to push back the darkness, that's the real Super Bowl, right? So, welcome to the Super Bowl. I will not be as entertaining as Patrick Mahomes or Taylor Swift. I think she plays for the Chiefs. I'm not sure. I don't really know exactly how that works. But, yeah. Boy. Anyway. We're not gonna we're not gonna get uh, off on that sidetrack, but so we today we are actually starting a, our series in Genesis, and by series that's a little bit of an understatement, because if you have been here, you might already know because we've kind of said it before. If you haven't been here, we'll be spending about the next ten and a half months in Genesis. Yes, who? Okay, like we're in church, so everybody be honest. It's okay. Who's like a little bit nervous that we're going to be spending 10 and a half months in Genesis? Like, okay, like really? Thank, thank you, Daryl. Thank you. Yes, a couple people. Thank you, Ashton. Very good. Awesome. I, I, I understand. I understand. Um, for those of you that, that might be new or that might not remember the last six months, uh, we kind of, um, our, our, our teaching team and our entire church was stretched at the end of last year because we spent six months going through Revelation. That's the longest series we'd ever done. We did a deep dive on Revelation. It wasn't nearly enough. But I really think it was pretty transformational for for our team and for the church to to really dig into the Word of God and go deep into what the Lord has to say for us. And so we started at the end, and now as we've kind of uh, talked about before in the uh, 24 series about Psalm 24, now we're kind of coming back to the beginning. We're coming back to Genesis, and we're going to do a deep dive in Genesis for about, you know, 10 and a half months. So I I promise you uh, it's going to be worth your time. I promise you. And so I have the very simple task today of basically setting the stage for a one-year deep dive into Genesis. So I promise to have you home by kickoff, but if you are planning to have some time to prepare your food beforehand, you might want to, you know, stop at Hy-Vee or something on the way home or wing stop and pick up some wings. Just kidding. But so ultimately, though, since we have an entire year basically to flesh out some of these ideas that I'm going to be presenting to you today, I'm going to try my best to stay way up at this 30,000 foot view because my goal is not is basically to, to lay out the, the scholarly and theological framework that we're going to be working within for the next 10 and a half months. Right, because these things are important to understand the text, to, to glean from the word of God what he's trying to say to us. And we do this exact same thing with, with uh, Revelation. Right? It's important to understand what you're reading, the literary genre that you're reading, because that changes how you read the text, how you interpret it. 
It's important to understand the context of when it was written, because remember, the Bible was not written to us, but it was written for us. And so we can't think with our Western minds about what the Bible is saying, because it's not saying that. The Bible is, the Bible is in, written in the ancient Near Eastern context. That's the context with which we need to understand it. So all of these things are important. It's important so that everyone is kind of working from the same foundation for these next 10 and a half months. We're all singing from the same sheet of music, per se. And so that's my goal today. My goal is not to answer every question about Genesis or provide a thesis-level defense for everything that I'm going to say. We got 10 and a half months to do that, all right? So that's how I'm going to get you home before kickoff, is I can't go deep into everything. I'm just going to kind of lay out the framework, and then everybody else uh, over the next 10 and a half months is going to flesh some of these things out. Deal? Okay. Awesome. So I'll probably say something today that might confuse you or jar you or, like, bring up some questions. That's okay. Keep coming back. We're going to keep fleshing these things out. Sound good? Okay. I have one other thing to ask of you. As we dive into Genesis, and we, we talked about this during our Revelation series as well, as we dive into Genesis, I would humbly ask you to leave your presuppositions about Genesis behind. It doesn't mean that you forget them, but I think we need to set them aside for a second, and I say that for one simple reason. Your presuppositions about Genesis will likely rob you of much of the beauty and power that is present in this book, right? Because when I say Revelation, some, some things come up in your mind. They're conjured in your mind, and the problem is that those ideas that you have stand in the way of you hearing from the Word of God and the Holy Spirit breathing on these words so that He can teach you something, All right? Tradition is not bad. Your previous teaching is not bad, but we need to listen to the Word of God with fresh ears, look at it with fresh eyes so that we don't quench with the Spirit is trying to say to us. And so I would ask you that as you, as you come to this book, that you, and especially in Genesis, because we've all, you know, we all have the flannel graph, some of us might have the flannel graph pictures of Genesis and creation and all those kinds of things in the back of our head. I would ask you to set those things aside because if you come to this book with an attitude of, I've already heard this, or I already know this, that will quench what the Spirit is trying to speak to you, okay? So that's what we want to avoid. Tradition can be helpful, but tradition is not supreme. The Word of God, breathed upon by the Holy Spirit, is supreme. And so that's what we're going for. And so just like in, in Revelation where we didn't focus on timelines or eschatological structures or things like that, we focused on what the Word was actually trying to say, we're going to do the same thing in Genesis, which means that we're not going to focus on old earth versus new earth. We're not going to focus on was, was Noah and the ark really real? Were there only two animals? Well, some of the animals, there were more of them because they had to sacrifice them. But were there only two animals? Like, we're not going to focus on those things because that's ultimately not the main point that the text is trying to convey. And we're going to kind of get into that. There are far more deeper things and, frankly, far more relevant things to learn from the Word of God, to learn from Genesis, than is the earth old or new. Did Noah actually exist? All of those things. Okay? So that's what we're going to focus on. Deal? Everybody on board? Even if you're not, that's fine. All right, let's pray, and we'll get into it. Father, we just thank you for this time that we have to, to gather together as your family. God, I pray that you would illuminate your words to us today. I pray that we would 
Just have a hunger for your word. God, I pray most of all that, that simply you would help us to understand the, the magnitude and the gravity of your love over us. God, as we start to uncover the, the story of our origins and the origins of the earth, God, would we view that in light of how much you love us and how intentional you are in coming to us. So God, would your spirit move in this place? Would you change our hearts? Would you give us an understanding of your love? In Jesus' name, amen. So where I'm going this morning is, first we're just going to start with the structure of Genesis. How is Genesis structured? Again, very general. And then we're going to talk about cultural context. Again, the ancient Near Eastern context, not our Western context because we can't understand the Bible through our Western context. And then I'm going to back even further up and talk about the inspiration of Scripture. How did we, how did we even get this book in the first place? Because that's important to understand if we want to approach the text properly and we want to understand the Bible properly. So we need to talk about the inspiration of Scripture. And then lastly, I'm going to talk about the literary genre. Again, literary genre is important because you can't read Genesis like you read Revelation. Completely different things. And some people might think that's weird, but think about the literary genres that you encounter every day. Like, there's road signs. Like, that's a type of literary genre. There's something that you expect to get from a road sign, and that's different than you expect to get from a menu at a restaurant or the receipt that you, use, that, that, you, know, you, you pay with afterwards. Those are different literary contexts, and you have to interpret them or look at them differently because they have different kinds of information coming at you. Okay? So, same thing with the Bible. So those things are important. And I, I know that a lot of this, you know, I, know, I didn't mention like any like biblical stuff in there. I'm just talking about weird, nerdy stuff, right? I'm a nerd, deal with it. But even if it sounds boring to you, I, I, let, me, let me just come at it from this direction. I'm passionate about these things because I'm passionate about the fact that I want you to love this book for the rest of your life. That's why I care. I want you to value this book, the pages and the words in this book, more than you value your own life. Because there was a time in my life, probably I don't know exactly when it was, maybe 18 to, 18 to 20, 19 to 21. By the way, if you're 18 to 20, 19 to 21, you're done. Just letting you know. I was, and I didn't think I was dumb. And as somebody who has gone past 18 to 21, I'm just giving you a fair warning. The things that you think you know, you probably don't know. So, <laughs> yeah. And I'm dumb, dumb right now, too. I'll, I'm, I'm going to look, when I'm 50, I'll look back, or maybe 45, Chris, 46. Yeah. Shots fired. I love you. <laughs> I'll look back when I'm, you know, I'm 32 right now, almost 33. I'll look back and I'll be like, man, I was stupid. But the, the reason why I bring that up is because there was a time in my life when I came to the word of God and it did not excite me. I had read through it multiple times. I know all the stories. I had a pretty good handle on theology. I, I, I knew most of the things. And I literally thought when I opened up the Bible, I remember having this thought that, I have another 80 years of digging into this book, 
and I feel like I'm close to the bottom. Like, I feel like I've kind of reached the bottom of it. And where I am right now, and how much I love this book, my goodness, that is a stupid position. That's a dangerous position to be in. And so if I can encourage you or equip you or make this come alive in such a way where you never have those thoughts, or if you're having those thoughts right now that you say, oh man, I can't get enough of this, that's what I'm trying to accomplish today. So I'm not trying to be boring. I'm not trying to sit, like, show that I'm smart because I know some scholarly stuff about the Bible. I'm trying to make it come alive for you so that when you open the pages of this book, you encounter the God of the universe who did his best to try and contain the infiniteness of his character and love within the pages of the book that you can read. That's why I'm passionate about this stuff. And so within that context, I should probably move on. <laughs> Within that context, like, just stick with me, okay? I want you to love this book and love the God that wrote it so that you could know him. So, structure of Genesis. I got to get moving. Okay. Structure of Genesis. Genesis has 50 chapters that are numbered 1 to 50. We're starting off easy. And ultimately, Genesis is broken down in, into two main segments, you have 1 through 11, which is kind of like the prologue to Genesis that covers creation through Noah and the Tower of Babel. And then you have 12 through 50, which starts with Abraham, the life of Abraham, and goes through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Jacob's sons, and it ends at Joseph's death, and then Exodus picks up with Moses. Okay? That's, that's how Genesis is structured. And what I'm going to do is, is because, number one, we're going into 1 to 11 next, and number two, because 1 to 11 is so foundational, I'm going to just drill down a little bit more into 1 to 11 to give you some context about what, what that section of Scripture is supposed to do. So 1 through 11 basically gives us the context for the rest of the Bible. Right? It's like the prologue to a movie. Who in here is a nerd like me and likes Lord of the Rings? Yeah, there we go. A couple more hands. Awesome. So, if you remember back in the movies, I, I, I just looked this up. So like, I, re, I feel like there was a scene, and this is kind of what was going on, and it was true. So at the, the Fellowship of the Ring, the start of the movie is basically some B-roll happening in the background while Galadriel, for those of you that don't know, she's an elf. Well, 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 well Galadriel, I believe it's Galadriel, is, is narrating in the background the history of Middle-earth. And she talks about the, the rings of power and how the rings of power came into existence. And there were three for the elves and five for the dwarves and nine for the races of men. Yes, I am a nerd. And it talks about how, how Sauron came to power and, and, and this conflict. And ultimately what it's doing is it's setting the stage for the rest of the story. And that's exactly what chapters 1 through 11 are. It's setting the stage, it's giving you the context, giving you the, the good and the evil and how all those things came about so that when you read chapters 12 through Revelation uh, 22, that you understand where all of those things are coming from. So 1 through 11 is incredibly important. And ultimately what 1 through 11 contains is it starts with the grand story of God's desire to create a physical world and to create humans and establish communion with humanity. That's the way Genesis starts. God's grand story and his desire to create a physical world and to create humanity to live on that physical world so that he can have communion with them, so that they can partake in his divinity and be part of his family. 
And not only does he establish community with humans, but he gives humanity purpose. And that's very important. Because if you've ever been in a time of your life where you are purposeless, that's a dark place to be. Everything needs purpose to exist. And God was kind enough to say, not only am I going to create you, I'm going to give you purpose, very specific purpose. And that purpose is to be like him, to bear his image, to glorify the Lord, to be creators of order out of chaos. We are to bear his image and subdue chaos. Genesis sets the framework for for the purpose and existence of all humanity. And it's to be with God and to be like God. That is our purpose. To be with him and to be like him. We are to be like him in every way. We are his viceroys on this earth. We are to have dominion over what he has created and in submission to him, make the rest of the earth look like Eden. That was the original mission for Adam and Eve. Make the rest of the earth look like what I have created here, but it's your job to go do it. God also is kind enough in 1 through 11 to write the manual for human flourishing. It starts like this, one man, one woman. That's how it starts. There is no other combination. There's no other opinion. It is fact. One man, one woman. When you get out from underneath that God-given design for human flourishing, things break. One man, one woman, that leaves mommy and daddy. Now, you're supposed to stay connected with them and, and have communion with them and fellowship with them and learn from them, but you are supposed to separate from mom and dad and generate your own family, which also means having babies. That's another part of human flourishing. One man, one woman, leaving mom and dad to have babies, and in that community with your human family and in community with Yahweh, go out and subdue chaos and make the rest of the world look like Eden. That is the framework for all of human flourishing. And when we go outside of that framework, things break, and that's exactly what we see in Genesis 1 through 11. And Genesis 3, Genesis 6, and Genesis 11, the earth and all of humanity are wrecked by rebellion against Yahweh, both a spiritual rebellion and a human rebellion. That's what happens. You go outside of God's plan for flourishing and things break. And that's what happened in Genesis. And as, as a result of that, all of the nations of the earth are scattered and given over to other gods, to inferior gods, to be ruled by them as punishment for their rebellion. And that is the prologue of the entire Bible. Chapters 12 through Revelation 22 are ultimately to convey Yahweh's promise to redeem the earth and bring all of humanity back to himself. That's Genesis 12 through Revelation 22. That's the whole story. See, if, if this was a movie, you know, like in Lord of the Rings, where, you know, they kind of have the prologue, they, they give the context, and then it opens up to Frodo sitting under a tree. At least I think that's the next scene. <clears throat> if that was happening here in Genesis, 
1 through 11 is the prologue, and ultimately the first scene that would open up would be Yahweh telling Abraham, Abraham hearing the voice of the Lord, choosing him to be the vessel to execute Yahweh's promise to bless the earth and bring all humanity back to himself. That's how the scene would open in chapter 12. And as I said, chapters 12 through 50 and the rest of the Bible is about God executing that plan, the unfolding of God's plan for the redemption and bringing people back to himself to regain his human family and to restore our place as the rightful viceroys over the earth. I don't have time to explain viceroy. Go look it up. It's a very good representation of what the Lord wanted us to do here on this earth. We are underneath the authority of Yahweh, but we have our own authority to make this world look like Yahweh created it to look. That's what a viceroy is. That is the structure of the entire Bible. Pretty cool, right? So now when you read any other part of the Bible, think about that as the structure of the story. All right, number two. If we want to understand more of the Bible, we need to stop thinking like Westerners. We need to start thinking in the ancient Near Eastern context. And so <clears throat> I'm just going to kind of go through four really quick points that we're going to keep running into in the book of Genesis and, frankly, other places in the Bible after we're outside of this year, um, after we get outside of Genesis. And so these things are going to be very important. Remember, the Bible was written for us. It was not written to us. So we cannot read it as if it was written to us. Okay, we cannot read it with our own cultural context. All right, and so what are some ancient Near Eastern context things that will be important as we go through the book of Genesis? Number one, there are many gods. That's a fact. That's exactly what the Bible communicates to us, that there are many gods. Now, let's be clear. There is only one who is the creator. There is only one who is supreme. There is only one who is worthy of your worship and adoration. And there are others underneath of him that are posers that try to act like gods. And see, part of the problem is that um, in, our, in our Western enlightened culture and in our, really our, our Christendom culture, there's a lot of baggage that comes when we string the letters G-O-D together, right? We think about a certain, uh, a certain uh, array of characteristics when we hear the word God. The problem is that the ancient Hebrews didn't have that baggage. They used the word God. Their word for God was Elohim. That's the general word for God, lowercase g-o-d. Their word was Elohim, and they used that word for basically any entity that exists in the spiritual realm. That's what they used the word Elohim for. So like God, they used Elohim. Like Yahweh, they, they used Elohim sometimes. Lesser gods underneath of him, like the gods of, of the Canaanites and the Amalekites and the Assyrians and the Babylonians, the ancient Near Eastern people called those gods Elohim. There's even a, a, a text in Scripture where, where Saul goes to a, a, a seer, a medium, and asks the medium because he's freaking out about something. And he asks the medium, hey, same, at, at this point, the prophet Samuel's dead. And he says, hey, call up Samuel so that I can talk to him, so that I can figure out what he wants to say. And in the text, it calls Samuel's ghost, basically, an Elohim. Okay, so... The, the, the Hebrews did not have the same baggage with the words G-O-D that we do, okay? So the reason why I say that is because there are many gods, the Bible is clear about that, but Yahweh is supreme and incomparable, right? Yahweh is supreme. That's the ancient Near Eastern context. Number two, 
Geography is spiritually significant. Geography is spiritually significant. And we see this concept play out in many other places in the Bible, not just Genesis, the most famous of which is Daniel, where Daniel has a dream, an angel comes to him to interpret the dream, and the angel says, hey, sorry, bro, I got delayed. I was fighting with the prince of Persia. And he wasn't talking about the physical prince of Persia. He was talking about a, a, a demonic power or principality. And so as I said before, that in, in the end of Genesis 11, um, when the Tower of Babel event occurs, there are certain rebellious spiritual powers that are given dominion over various geographical areas. Like people are scattered to different areas around the world, and there are certain rebellious spiritual powers that are basically given dominion over them. As punishment for those people, they have a lesser God ruling over them. And the reason why that's important is because those geographical regions to the people of the ancient Near East were very important. Because if you got outside of the region of your God, the protection of your God, you risk losing that protection as you step into another God's territory. The other thing that you risk is you risk a, a cosmic battle, a spiritual battle, if your God goes with you into the enemy territory, and now he has to fight the other God of the other enemy territory, right? That I know it sounds really weird, especially to our Western minds. That's, that's the context of the Bible. It's what's in here. So geography is spiritually significant. Number three, words have multiple meanings and names have power. Words have multiple meanings and names have power. As one example of words have multiple meanings... In Genesis 3, the, we, we have the word serpent. The Hebrew word for that is nakash. And nakash does not have a single meaning. Nakash is actually a, a three-layered word. It has three different definitions. And it's not like, well, it could be this one time or that one time or this another time, depending on the context. No, it means all three of those things at the same time. And nakash is a, very, is a very general word. It's somewhat of an ambiguous word. And that, the ambiguous nature of that word is important because you're not supposed to read that word and say, oh, it's this specific thing. You're supposed to read that word and see the, the litany of definitions about it because it more accurately contains the, the concept that is trying to be portrayed. And so words are important and words have different meanings. And so we're going to be digging into some of those things as we go through the text. That ambiguity in those words is important because it's not just supposed to mean one thing. It's supposed to mean many things. It's much deeper than just a single layer definition. What about names have power? So in the ancient Near East, names, especially the names of gods, were considered to have power because the name itself, when you invoked the name of a god, the name was the very embodiment of their physical presence. Like, it's as if they were there. And so when, when the ancient Israelites, or when we, carry the name of Yahweh, it is as if Yahweh is right here with you, right? That should excite you, right? That is a, that's a, a very uh, clear theology that the Hebrews believed, and it's something that we should adopt ourselves, right? If you carry the name of Yahweh, if you carry the name of Jesus, in their context, that meant that he was with you. Like in person, all of his power, all of his character is present with you and in you. There's a, another passage in the Bible where uh, it, it's a prophecy 
where God is speaking about his angel. He's actually speaking about Jesus. But he's speaking about the angel of the Lord, and he he says, and my name is in him. That meant that everything that, that, that encompasses Yahweh is contained within that name, and the name is in Jesus. Jesus contained everything that Yahweh was. Words have multiple meanings, and names have power. Number four, genealogies are important, but not in the way that we think they are. Genealogies are important, but not in the way that we think they are. So genealogies in the ancient Near East were not constructed to simply tie together family trees or to calculate how long ago somebody lived. Right? That's how we view genealogies in our Western culture. We're like, oh, well, Sally was married to Bill, and uh, you know, Bill, Bill's dad was... X, and then, you know, they married these people, and their parents were these people, and their grandparents were these people, and we build this nice family tree. And for us, it's all about just knowledge about where we came from, and how long ago somebody lived, when they moved to the U.S., or, you know, whatever that is. That's not how people in the ancient Near East constructed genealogies. That's not the purpose that they were used for. Rather, in the ancient Near East, names and numbers were both used to deliver spiritual truths, or to deliver a message of faith. That's why genealogies were constructed back in the ancient Near East. It wasn't just to say, this person was born from this person, who was born from that person, who was born from this person, and this is how long ago they lived. That was not the point. The point was actually to deliver a spiritual message in that genealogy. Sometimes that spiritual message was a theological statement about the progression of a blessing or a curse. It wasn't meant to show you this person had this person who who had this person, and this is how long ago they lived. It was to show this blessing followed this lineage. And the names and numbers, sometimes the names and numbers are significant, but they're not the most significant. It's this was the, the course that the blessing took, or this was the course that the curse took. That's why people in the ancient Near East created genealogies. That was their structure. It was not just a list of people and their progeny. And so we shouldn't read them that way either. All right. Number three. Backing way, way up. How did we even get the Bible in the first place? Who, who in here has ever thought about, like, the, the mechanism of the inspiration of Scripture? Right? Just going beyond, okay, like, the Scripture was inspired, but, like, how did that actually happen? Yeah, I, I know you have. And I, I saw a couple of hands over there, which is awesome. That, that's what we're going to talk about today. Not just the fact that the scripture was inspired, but how was it inspired? How did that actually happen? Because it's important for the way that we read the text. And just so that you know, like before I say anything else, here at this church, this book is holy. It is 100% God-breathed. It is 100% true. It's the inerrant word of God, and it's profitable for, for teaching, for rebuking, for training in righteousness so that we can serve God in the way that he he intended us to serve him. That's what this book is. There is nothing on this earth that embodies truth more than this book. Do you understand? Okay, so let's talk about how it was inspired. And kind of before we get there, I think it's important to start with a quick understanding about how God's sovereignty acts in regard to our free will. How do those things interact with each other? How does God's sovereignty interact with our free will? 
And personally, I used to have a very deterministic view, which basically deterministic, meaning that God determines and dictates and predestines every single event that has ever happened, is happening now, and will ever happen. Like God not just orchestrated it, like he chose that that's what's going to happen. Very deterministic view. And ultimately, I think that that comes from a really, really good place. It did for me which was ultimately to try and, and lift God up to the highest power and control possible. But I think if you take that to its ultimate destination, the problem is, well, number one, God doesn't need our protection. He doesn't need us to protect his power or his sovereignty. It just is. And number two, I think at times if we, if we elevate those things as much as I did, where everything is predetermined, absolutely everything, Ultimately, what that does is that actually undermines the power and sovereignty of God. If our free will is completely out of the way, it actually undermines God's power and his free will. Let me give you a a quick example. Well, actually, first, let me just say my definition, how I view the way that God's sovereignty interacts with with our free will. God accomplishes his divine and sovereign purpose using the free agency of his human and spiritual creation. God accomplishes his sovereign and divine purpose using the free agency of his human and spiritual creation. God's power and his sovereignty is much more powerful with our free agency intact. Our free agency is not superior to his sovereignty, but his sovereignty is more powerful if our free agency is still intact. Let me just give you a really quick example. Some of you may have heard this kind of analogy before. Say you... Walk up to a table, there's a chessboard on the table, and God is sitting on the other side, and you sit down to play chess with God, right? This is going to go well, isn't it, right? And you look across the table with Yahweh, shake his hand, and Yahweh says, just want to let you know, um, I have predetermined every single move that you're going to make, so I win. That's pretty cool, right? Like, wait, you can, can... but I haven't made any decisions yet. No, no, I know. I, 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 already, I already picked them for you, so I win. Okay. Or, what, what, which one's more powerful? Which one displays God's sovereignty and his power and his actual control more? That situation. Or, you sit down, chest, uh, chest board is out, all the pieces are in place. They're very nice, made of marble or something like that. Mahogany. Because God has good chess pieces. Shake Yahweh's hand, and Yahweh says, looks at you in the eyes, and he says, you can move anywhere you want, any way you want, whenever you want, and I still win. That's how God's sovereignty, it's, it's, it's small and maybe sounds a little trite, that's how God's sovereignty interacts with our free agency. God accomplishes his sovereign and divine purpose using the free agency of his human and spiritual creation. And so now let's think about that within the context of inspiration. Okay, within the context of how was this word actually breathed out by God? So what I used to think in my deterministic sense was was that it was either a Holy Spirit possession or Holy Spirit dictation, i.e., God inspired scripture to be written, 
the writer basically went into some kind of a trance, wrote some stuff down, and then woke up and said, wow, that's pretty good. <laughs> right? The perfect and inerrant word of God. Or Holy Spirit dictation, where, where you know, maybe the person is conscious, but the Holy Spirit is in his ear. In the beginning was the word and I want pizza. No, you're going to have to say that one again. I don't think that's right. Holy Spirit dictation. And I would argue that it's neither one of those. Can he do that? Yes, absolutely. I will never limit God in his power or what he is able to do or not do. However, if that's your idea of how scripture was inspired, you're going to run into problems as you approach the text. Things are going to get a little confusing. And so I believe that, that the inspiration of scripture was rather fully providential. The inspiration of scripture was fully providential, meaning that when God inspires a writer, every experience that that person has ever had, every memory that they have, every story they've ever heard, every conversation that they've been a part of or heard secondhand, every, every scene of the earth or, or every part of their life was perfectly lined up, was perfectly providential so that when Yahweh says, write, it perfectly accomplishes Yahweh's divine purpose. So that when Yahweh says, right, that despite the writer's personal imperfections, despite the writer's imperfect or incomplete understanding of the world, what is produced is something that perfectly and inerrantly serves his purpose, the purpose that he intended for in his word. The inspiration of scripture is fully providential. And so let's go through a quick example of why this matters. So in, in Genesis, we have the creation account, okay? And what is being described in that creation account is this. You can put the picture up. You've seen this picture before, okay? This is the, the depiction of how the ancient Near Eastern peoples, Hebrews and others, viewed the nature of the universe. I'm not going to get into explaining it. You can go back and listen to other, other uh, messages from my brother and maybe others that explained what this actually is. But this is the view that they had. And if you actually read the text, this is what Genesis is describing. It's describing that. And so the question, like, is that right? Is that a correct view of the world? Now, if there's flat earthers in here, I, I'm sorry, because this is what a lot of flat earthers believe. Um, you're wrong. This isn't what it looks like. And so the question is then, does that violate the inerrancy of Scripture? That's a legitimate question. No, it does not. It does not violate the inerrancy of Scripture. But it should make us ask a number of questions. Why was that what's depicted? Or how could that be depicted if the Holy Spirit was dictating to somebody exactly what to write? or if they were under a trance and God himself was the one actually writing down the words? Would God dictate an incorrect view of the nature of the universe? Possibly. Or 
Was it the writer's culture and worldview coming through into the text? Was it the writer's culture and worldview coming into the text? And even though it's scientifically wrong, God doesn't really care because the purpose of God inspiring Scripture to be written and inspiring the story of creation into existence was not so that we can have an accurate view of the universe. That's not what God was trying to do in Genesis. What God was trying to do in Genesis was set a theological framework for his relationship to us, to the physical nature of the universe, and to humanity. That's what he was trying to do. You see, if God was, was concerned about the, uh, an accurate portrayal of the scientific nature of the universe, of natural history, he probably would have waited until now, right, to inspire scripture, right? Because we're enlightened and we know everything. Wrong. If God was really concerned about the scientific nature of the universe, if that's what he was really trying to convey, he wouldn't have waited until now either. Because guess what? 500, say we take the best theoretical physicist present in existence, and God tells him, all right, like right, I'm inspiring you to write scripture. I want you to write down something about how the world came about. And he wrote a thesis-level dictation on how the world came about. 500 years from now, somebody would look back on that and say, man, that dude was a fool. Right? God is not really concerned with an accurate portrayal of the scientific nature of the universe in his book. What he is concerned with is that you understand why he created the world and that he created it for you. That's what he's concerned with. He's setting a theological framework for his relationship to the physical world and to humanity. And so through an imperfect person with an imperfect view of the physical world, God providentially inspired a perfect depiction of his love, of his power, of his character, and of his purpose in the creation story. I know that's probably not something that you've ever heard before, which is why we're spending 10 and a half months in Genesis. Let me say that again. Through an imperfect person with an imperfect view of the physical world, God providentially inspired a perfect depiction of his love, his power, his purpose, and his character in the creation story. He's not that concerned with natural history, and so we shouldn't get that caught up on it either. Because guess what? Your understanding of natural history is woefully short of God's understanding of natural history. And it will be woefully short of other humans' understanding of natural history 500 years from now, even 100 years from now. So don't think that you're that smart because we're not. You didn't breathe the universe into existence. Yahweh did. Don't try to compete with his knowledge. All right. Lastly, let's talk about literary genre. I promise I'm getting close. Again, literary genre is important. It was important in Revelation. It's still important in Genesis because you cannot read apocalyptic literature like you read Genesis. Two very different things. And so as I just explained, we can't read Genesis like it's natural history. I would also suggest that we shouldn't read Genesis like it's a history textbook. Okay, so what ultimately is the literary genre of Genesis? In its broadest form, Genesis is made up mostly of narrative, like 95% narrative. There's a little bit of song in there. There's some psalms. 
but 95% of it is narrative. And there's different flavors of narrative. I'm not going to get into that. Just think that Genesis is narrative. And so the question is, how do we read narrative in the Bible? Right? When we talk about apocalyptic literature, we, you know, everything was full of symbolism, and so we had to read it a specific way. So the question is, how do we read narrative in the Bible? And about 50% of the Bible is narrative. Okay? And so this is very important to understand, not just for Genesis, but for 50% of what's in this book. So how do we read Genesis? We don't read it like natural history. And I'd also argue we don't read it like a history book. Because when you're reading a history textbook, it puts your brain in a mode to only look for, well, this happened, then that happened, then this dude was born, then this king rose to power, and they fought these people, and those people were defeated, and they enslaved these people. That's where your brain goes. Our brains are primed when we're reading a history textbook to think in A, B, C, this happened, then that happened terms. The problem is that while you're thinking in A, B, C terms, the text is playing 3D chess. And so if your brain is primed to only be thinking in ABC terms, you're going to miss a lot of what is lying under the surface, and I would argue mostly what the word is trying to communicate to you. We end up missing a ton of the beauty and power that is present in the book. Genesis is so much deeper than a textbook. Than a textbook. The rest of the Bible is so much deeper than a, than a textbook. Remember in Revelation when we talked about we need to look higher, we need to think broader, we need to think with our theological mind first and not with our historical mind first. That's exactly the case for Genesis. We need to think bigger and broader and deeper. We need to think with our theological mind first. So I still haven't answered my question because I'm a little nervous about how you're going to react, but that's okay. Stick with me for more than one sentence. Just give me three sentences and I think I'll fix it. I would argue that when we read Genesis and all narrative in the Bible, that we should read it like it's fiction. That was sentence number one. Give me two more. I would argue that we should read the narrative in the Bible like it's fiction. Now, let me be very, very, very clear. It is not fiction. This is 100% true. It is inerrant. It is breathed out by God so that you can interact with him and know him, understand his character, be changed by his love and his power. Nothing in here is fiction. But when it comes to narrative, we should read it like it's fiction. Let me explain. Just like when you read a history textbook and your brain thinks in ABC terms, when you read fiction, your brain is not thinking in ABC terms. The Bible doesn't want you to think in ABC terms. Remember, it's playing 3D chess. You see, when we read fiction, we have certain expectations about how fiction is structured, about how it's supposed to communicate with us. See, when we, when we read fiction, we're thinking about the connections between the story arc and the characters and the words that are used to describe the setting that the story is in. All of these things are simultaneously going on within our mind as we're trying to put this picture together of this story that's unfolding in front of us. 
In fiction, words and names are used very specifically. They're supposed to either invoke a certain kind of emotion, inject emotion into the text, or give us a remembrance of something that we have heard earlier in the story or a foreshadowing of something else that's to come. In fiction, words and names are very specific and very important. Fiction weaves threads together between people and concepts and ideas that you have run into before or will run into again. And it's these threads, these connections between people and concepts and names and places that are all supposed to be contained within your mind because it's going to become important later on. That's how fiction is structured. In fiction, the story isn't written in a straight line. You have the main story arc, and then oftentimes it will break off into a separate story arc. And you'll meet new characters and new contexts, but then it'll come back to the main story arc and then break off into a different one. And there's more characters over here and more context over here, and then you come back to the main story arc, and now you have a better picture of what's happening in the entire story. It's exactly how the Bible is structured. It's not A, B, C. It's structured like fiction. It's not fiction. It's true. But it's structured like fiction, so we should read it that way. We shouldn't read it like a textbook. See, in fiction, there are main characters and side characters and protagonists and antagonists and heroes and anti-heroes and side stories, but everything is important and contributes to the depth and the truth of the narrative. Everything is meaningful and significant. There's not a stray word or a stray name or a stray event within a narrative that doesn't contribute value and importance to the story. So we should read the Bible that way. See, this is how Genesis and about half the Bible are structured. It's a narrative. And oftentimes we read it as if we're reading a textbook and we are missing so much. It is not fiction, but we should read it like it's fiction because it will prime our minds to see far more of what the word is trying to communicate than if we're simply reading a textbook. Make sense? Everybody tracking with where I'm coming from there? Let me reiterate again. This is not fiction but you should read it like it's fiction. It will help. It will help you understand the God who wrote it better. It will help you understand how much he loves you. It will help you understand how much he loves your enemies. It will help you understand just how providential he's been over your life. You are doing this book a disservice if you read it like a textbook. It's not how it was meant to be read. It's not how it's structured. So that kind of sets up the scholarly framework for Genesis. That's, that's kind of the world that we're going to be living in for the next 10 and a half months. By the way, thank you for making it through my intro. <laughs> Kidding. So that kind of sets up the framework, but ultimately, what is the purpose of Genesis? And we kind of talked about this in Revelation too. 
one of the things that I said in Revelation is that what is Revelation meant to do in us? Revelation was meant to awaken us to reality, anchor us in victory, and ignite us to action. That's what Revelation was for. So the question is, what is Genesis for? What's it supposed to do in us? How is it supposed to change us? What's it supposed to reveal to us? Heidi's going to dig into that a lot more next week because I don't have time to get into all that now. But if there is one thing that I would leave you with, if there is one string that I want you to focus on as we go through Genesis, it's this. God's love for you is unmatched. Now it sounds kind of weird or out of left field after all the stuff we've just been talking about. We've been very heady. But I, I, I want you to just pause and maybe take a couple deep breaths because I've been talking a lot and I understand you might not want to hear my voice that much. But just take a couple breaths and, and let that really sit with you that, that Yahweh's love for you is un matched and this book is trying to communicate that message to you and so if you're opening this book and you're not feeling that come talk to somebody keep going persevere through ask the Holy Spirit to reveal that to you like God show me your love in this book God's love for you is unmatched See, the biblical creation account is the only creation account where the expressed purpose of human creation was to, communi- was to commune with God, be in community with him, and participate in his divinity. The only one. Where the expressed purpose that you were created was to have communion with God and to participate with him in his divinity. Every other creation narrative of the ancient Near East either sets humans forward as created by the gods to work for them so that the gods didn't have to work so that they could be lazy, or humans were created basically by accident out of activity of the gods, and then the gods used them for the work so that they didn't have to. And so if somebody tells you that, you know, all religions are basically the same, all you have to do is just start there. Start at the beginning. You say, okay, tell me another religion where God specifically creates humans just so that they can be with him. Just so they can be in his presence. And so that they can be like him, that they can take part in his nature and and subdue chaos along with him. That he gives them purpose that is far beyond just serving him. It's, it's, it's expanding him. And he doesn't use humans as slaves. He uses them as an extension of himself. Tell me another religion that's like that. Go see if there's another God that created humans just so that they could be with him doesn't exist. God's love for you is unmatched.
He created you to be his image and reflect his image. I just want you to, to think about how unbelievable that is. The God of the universe that spoke everything into existence. That is so powerful that he doesn't have to predetermine everything. He can say, you can move whenever you want, however you want, whenever you want, and I still win. That God looks at you and says, I just want to be with you. I want you to be with me. I want to give you purpose. I don't want you to be walking around this life listless and not knowing what you're supposed to do. Just, just come close to me. Come under my wing. Let me tell you how humans are supposed to flourish. Let me tell you what will actually make this world look like the Garden of Eden. And then go do it. I'll be there with you. I'll help you. I'll empower you. I will even be inside of you in the form of my spirit. That should blow our minds. That should absolutely wreck us that that God wants to be with you. See, his love for you is unmatched. He loves you more than anybody ever could. Maybe you're even a narcissist and you love yourself more than anything else in the world. Guess what? God loves you more. He wants to crush your narcissism, by the way. Because that's actually, as good as that feels, that's actually damaging to you. That is not in his plan of human flourishing over your life. So he'll crush it because he loves you that much. He would hate to see his image bearer destroyed. So as I, as I started this sermon off, I, I want you to love this book because it communicates all of those things about who he is to you. His love for you is unmatched because that God in his divinity and providence somehow was able to contain his character and his love within pages that you now have sitting in your lap right now or on your phone so that you can read them and know him. How is that even possible? His love for you is unmatched. And it grieves his heart when we step outside of his design for human flourishing. Because he has done so many things that you don't even understand. Maybe you feel like your life has been an absolute train wreck and full of nothing but trauma. And, and maybe that's true. But let me tell you something. You are not too far outside of God's reach. Somehow in his providence, he is writing a beautiful story through your life. And the worst thing that can happen is if you snuff it out. God hates it when his image bearers are destroyed. He hates it when his image bearers are corrupted. 
and are displaying something that is not his image. Because there's so much more for you. There's a life that is so much better for you. God's love for you is unmatched. Yahweh is supreme in his power and he is unmatched in his love for you. The other thing that's unique about the God of the Bible is that even when we screw up, he is the one who pursues. Even when when his spiritual and his human creation made a wreck of the universe that he created, he says, nah, that's on me. I'm going to go fix it. Even when you've made a wreck of your life or when somebody else has made a wreck of your life, God still pursues you because his love for you is unmatched and he is your only hope at creating life out of ashes. At creating a a garden out of a graveyard. He's your only hope. His love for you is unmatched. Why don't you stand and pray? Maybe you walked into this place this morning and and you feel unloved. Tossed by the winds of life. Purposeless, just trying to survive. And you feel like nobody's ever really loved you. just rebuke that lie of Satan right now in the name of Jesus and I send it back to the pit of hell and let me speak truth over you that the God of the universe looks on you and says my son, my daughter, you are precious in my sight and every pain that you felt, I felt it too every hurt that you've gone through, I've collected your tears Yes, I'm up here running the universe, but I'm also interested in you. I'm with you and I love you. what the Lord wants to do this morning is just to to show you a picture of his love. So that the the band's going to play behind me and you you can respond however you feel the Lord is calling you to respond. But I just want to pray this one simple prayer.
God, would you supernaturally impart to us an understanding of the magnitude of your love over us. I rebuke any lies of the enemy that are standing in the way. I rebuke any trauma that is getting in the way of us feeling the pure and righteous and and undeserved love of the Father. God, would you impart to us an experience of your love like we have never felt before? And would it change us? Yahweh, you are supreme. You are alone of worthy of praise and worship and adoration. God, and right now we, we recognize and we experience right now that your love for us is unmatched. Holy Spirit, change us.